0: Memento Mori. Remember your death.
1: Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Lanker, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Joe Heschmeyer, from Shameless Popery and School of Faith. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks, Chloe. So, we're in the middle of Advent. Yesterday was the first Sunday of Advent, and it's a season that we spend... Hearts for the coming of Christ as a baby who's born in Bethlehem. And we were throwing out ideas for Advent series and spend the next four weeks talking about something's particularly Adventy and tossed about a, a lot of ideas. But what we ended up with sounds different at first glance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Might be a little darker than your normal, like, take a little chocolate out of the Advent calendar.
1: <laughs> but at second glance and deeper glance, we, we're gonna find this beautiful meaning of the real meaning of Advent as As a preparation season. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be resurrecting what was a very traditional understanding of Advent. So it used to be that priests would use the four Sundays of Advent to spend time talking about what we now refer to as the four last things. So death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And you may be wondering, why would you be doing this in Advent? And the beauty of this is that it's actually really rooted in scripture. So if you go to Sirach chapter 7, verses 32 through 37, you read, stretch forth your hand to the poor so that your blessing may be complete. Give graciously to all the living and withhold not kindness from the dead. Do not fail those who weep, but mourn with those who mourn. Do not shrink from visiting a sick man because for such deeds you will be loved. In all you do, remember the end of your life and then you will never sin.
0: I never really noticed this passage. I'm sure I'd read it before, mm-hmm. but I'd never really paid any attention to it until I read part of uh, St. Thomas More's commentary on it. He has an unfinished contemplation on the four last things. And it's kind of beautiful. It's an unfinished essay. It's unfinished yeah. because he's captured, sent to prison, and executed.
1: Oh, wow. So he experiences right. the four last things. That's so
0: he begins sure. his contemplation on death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And then he experiences death, judgment, and heaven. Mm-hmm. And so it's a pretty beautiful way... Uh, to sort of end the essay in a a certain way by by living it out. But he talks about it, and he looks at this last line in Sirach, that remember the end of your life, and then you will never sin. So he compares it to a physician giving you a prescription. And he says, Here is first a short medicine, containing only four herbs, and they are common and well-known, death, judgment, pain, and joy. This short medicine has a marvelous potency, or marvelous potential. The ability to keep us all our lives from sin. And then he talks about how other physicians, you know, they they can't give one medicine to cure all disease. They can't give one medicine to all different people because people are, they react differently. And he says this medicine, however, serves everyone. So then he explores, you know, why. But he also explores the fact that we don't really want to take this medicine. We find talking about death to be a bitter pill. He says, you will say, perhaps, that some part of this medicine is very bitter and painful to take. Well, surely nothing can be so bitter that a wise person wouldn't put up with it for so great a profit. And yet this medicine, even if you make a sour face at it, is not so bitter as you make it out to be. And he explains that even though we have to focus on death, judgment, and hell, we have this counterbalanced by heaven, and moreover, By focusing on them, we avoid going to hell. So it ends up being, of course, not a bad medicine at all. But that's anyway, that's the the general overview. That if you act, if you spend your entire life basing your actions on the fact that you're a creature who's going to die, who's going to be judged, and is going to spend eternity either in heaven or in hell, you'll make better decisions. You'll make better choices.
1: So you may give us, okay, that's great, we should talk about our death. This is something that's kind of... Something we can't escape, so let's talk about it. But then you still may question why we're talking about this during Advent, because it seems like it's a subject that we should be talking about during Lent when we prepare for the death of Christ. Or maybe we should have talked about this in November with Halloween or the month that the church sets aside specifically to remember the dead. So why Advent? That's
0: a good question. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, this was the traditional time to focus on the four last things and the four Sunday homilies. Part of that might have just been the convenience that you have four Sundays set aside. And this is a nice little four-part series. But it really is that it's a season of preparation. So the church has what are called general norms for the liturgical year and calendar. And in paragraph 39 of the document that just explains what do we do in the different parts of the year, what should the liturgical year look like, how should you celebrate it, how should you enter into it, here's what she says about Advent. Advent has a twofold character. As a season to prepare for Christmas, when Christ's first coming to us is remembered. As a season when that remembrance directs the mind and heart to await Christ's second coming at the end of time. Advent is thus a period for devout and joyful expectation. So, Advent means coming. We talked about this in the Seventh-day Adventism right. episode. Yep. And we talk about Advent to mean one of two things. Christ's first coming at Christmas, and Christ's second coming at the end of time to judge the world, to separate the sheep and goats. And so judgment, heaven, and hell are all very much a part of this preparation for the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. If you listen closely to the readings, you'll see the four Sundays of Advent are actually divided in a sort of unusual way. The first two Sundays don't focus on Christmas. They focus on the end of the world. They focus on the second coming. And this is beautiful. So Advent, as you may know, is the start of the liturgical year. So to listeners, I suppose, Happy New Year. Mm-hmm. The liturgical year ended right before the first Sunday of Advent with a bunch of readings focused on the end of the world, the second coming of Christ. And so the Sunday right before is Christ the King's Sunday, where we talk about Christ coming in glory to reign over all creation. It's a majestic finale to the entire Christian message. So it's very fittingly at the very end. And then we immediately go back and start the cycle over with Advent, which is a season of preparation of waiting for the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's a waiting for the beginning of Christmas, but it's also waiting for the beginning of Christ's reign in that way. So we have two Sundays focused on the second coming and preparing ourselves for that. And two Sundays focused on Christmas, preparing ourselves for the first coming. And I think one of the reasons it's so beautiful is that it never lets us get lost in treating Christmas just as a historical event. You know, we talk about how, oh, people weren't prepared for Christ's entry into the world, and there was no room in the inn, and so on and so forth. Well, is there room in the inn of your heart? Is there room in the temple of your soul? Is there room in your life now for Christ's entry into your life? That's the whole theme of Advent. And it's a good preparation, of course, for you going to meet him in death.
1: So we're going to have a conversation today about the reality of death in our own lives and what we can, how we look at death as Catholics and how it's different from today's culture. But before we start into that conversation, it may seem obvious at first glance, but what is death? And why does what we say about death reveal something about who we are?
0: Yeah. So this is something where actually medically, death is much harder to grasp than you might expect. Yep. So just as we've had big debates in this culture about when life begins... There are also less popular but still really important debates about when life ends. Because it's often very hard to tell if a person is truly dead. And it turns out the medical profession has a very different understanding of death than the church does. For a simple reason. When we talk about death, what we mean, what all of us mean, but what some of us know we mean, is the soul's separation from the body. The you are a body and a soul. You're not just one or the other. You're the two combined. The total you is body and soul. And your body only works as a body, we would say, if it's informed by the soul. If the soul is the principle governing and, and leading it. So that's a confusing kind of clan, and it's one that a lot of people probably are skeptical of. We can actually point to it pretty clearly just using reason alone. So the philosopher Peter Kraft has a thought experiment that I think does a really good job um, of establishing why we believe this. He calls it Primitive Man's Argument from Dead Cow.
1: A great title. <laughs> a great title.
0: And, and so he, he talks about it almost as the way someone with no knowledge or understanding would come to know about the soul. Here's what he says. Primitive man has two cows. One dies. What's the difference between dead cow and live cow? Primitive man looks. He's really bright. (laughs) There appears to be no material difference in size or weight immediately upon death. Yet there is an enormous difference. Something is missing. What? Life, of course. And what is that? The answer is obvious to any intelligent observer whose head is not clouded with theories. Life is what makes live cow breathe. Life is breath. The word for soul, or life, and breath, is the same in many ancient languages. Soul is not air, which is still in dead cow's lungs, but the power to move it.
1: That's so beautifully simple. Logical, just reasoning through it.
0: Exactly. And so the Latin word for soul is anima, Mm -hmm. because it's the animating principle. So animation, movement, the ability to move... All of that comes from the soul. You've got the parts, but there's nothing in control without a soul. And so that's what separates a living from a dead person. The ability to do things like metabolize, Mm -hmm. to breathe, those sort of things, that's evidence that the soul is still present in the body. So this becomes really important, and I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole. But in the whole debate about uh, organ donation, about brain death, about all of these things... The principle that needs to be respected and observed is if the body is doing bodily things, metabolizing, if the blood is flowing, if the air is moving through the lungs and, you know, the power to move the air, all of that stuff shows you don't just have individual organs. You don't just have a a clump of meat. You actually have something living, moving very much alive. So it's a, it's a principle of movement, which is, to say, a principle of life.
1: I think the Catholic understanding of that is so beautiful in respecting the human dignity, too. Because it's easy, especially in the medical world and medical terminology, to look at things like, okay, this is a part that we, we need for something, but instead to see this still as a human being who is alive, who has breath, who has a soul.
0: Yeah, because oftentimes scientists are focused on things like cellular life. Mm-hmm. Are the cells alive? But even when you lose skin cells, some of those cells stay alive. Right. But they're alive as cells. They're not alive as an organism. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like the cells are a separate living being. It's that there's still cellular life. All of that gets much more complicated. Right. But the point is, it's not just that your organs are alive. It's that you as a system, as an organism, as a person, are alive. So death... We can really say it reveals us to ourselves because when we see what stops us from being fully who we are, it's the soul leaving the body. A lot of the world will tell you you're just a body. Well, a dead body is just a body. So that understanding of the person literally can't tell the difference between a living and a dead
1: person. It's a big difference. The big line of differentiation. You want to be able to tell the difference. Right.
0: (laughs) If I can't distinguish you from a corpse, that's a bad philosophy, right? Exactly.
1: (laughs) So we've talked about what death is as a whole. So let's talk about why we do not want to talk about death. So we don't want to talk about death because our culture really encourages us to not think about death. And in all reality, that's a good reason to talk about death. So one of my favorite books is Kristen Labyrinth's Daughter. And it's by an author, Sigrid Undset. She's a Nobel Peace Prize winning author. And she writes this story about a family... Growing Up in 14th Century Norway. And it's beautiful. If you haven't picked it up, you need to pick it up at least twice. Um, it's on my Christmas list this year to get. But it's a beautiful book that talks about the reality of death and life and how intertwined those two are. Um, a really good commentary on Kristen Lavransdatter Daughter is by Tyler Blansky. And it was published in Crisis Magazine. So I'll leave a link to this in the show notes because we won't be able to dive into this article nearly as much as I'd like to. Um, but the title of it's Death in Kristen Lavransdatter, Daughter. And Tyler writes... A violent confrontation with contemporary culture, Unset's tale is a clarion reminder that to be human is to die. But ours is a culture that is Victorian when it comes to death, and the denial is increasingly morbid. This time, the skeleton in the closet is actually a skeleton. From vampire romances to abortion, from corpse-like models to pornography, to the zombie apocalypse, we are The Walking Dead. Youth is for sale, but the mortality rate is still 100%. So we see in our culture that when we used to have these holy, wholesome ways to grieve in a healthy way, like Requiem Masses um, and being able to grieve as a family together, we're now seeing things like a celebration of life instead of a funeral. And because we've taken away the means to healthily process death and grief, we've also in some ways taken away the ability that we have to live a wholesome life too.
0: Yeah. I love the examples that he gives. Mm -hmm. And for a very simple reason. I mean, imagine a person who lost a child and who refused or was unable psychologically to come to terms with that fact. Well, that person is going to obviously not be psychologically healthy in other ways. You can't just compartmentalize something that horrific Refuse to address it and expect the rest of your life to go unaffected.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. let I me mean, from personal experience, for listeners to know a little bit about our story. So my husband, Joseph, and I lost our son at eight weeks, Marion. And when you're looking for resources as a Catholic woman, as a Catholic couple, uh, for Joseph as a Catholic husband, you really see these two camps. You see couples who really don't have the framework to process losing a baby because they don't have a framework of understanding life. And then you see couples who have this beautiful framework of hope. And so they're able to process this death of their child. And it's just completely different on how these couples lives turn out at the end of this processing or as they continuously process this grief, because if you process this without hope, it really is awful.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Powerfully put. And I think that it's a really good example. I'm I'm glad you shared it because miscarriage is one of those things. There's a strong cultural deterrent to even talk about, even acknowledge that it happened. Yep. I am shocked regularly by the number of women who have no idea how many pregnancies end in miscarriage. And then when it happens to them, they're horrified and they feel like failures. They feel like they've done something wrong. And it's yeah. largely this really toxic way. We are so uh, averse to actually having an adult conversation about death
1: mm-hmm.
0: that we end up making grieving parents feel monstrous. Yes.
1: Or worse, like with com- like comforting, supposedly comforting comments that we'll say, but because we don't know how to process this loss of life, we end up really just hurting them and hurting their process of grieving too.
0: Or you'll hear things like, well, they, you know, heaven has another angel. Yep. And okay. these things that are just theologically insane. Right. Like, no. That's
1: not how death works. <laughs> Dead humans
0: don't become angels. <laughs> right. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, but it, it shows that we just don't have any way to... We, we are at such a basic level. Right. We're so in- embarrassingly... Unable to have a conversation about death. Mm-hmm. And yet it's something that what I think we're pointed to uh, scripturally. So I want to talk a little bit about the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. And I think this shows us the difference between what the culture wants to do, which is not talk about death, at least not in any real or serious mm-hmm. way. You know, people might die on screen, but then everything just moves on and there's right. no real consequences. Right. Versus the way Christ approaches death, which is a really a very serious way, and he, he views it as uh, shaping how we live. So this is Luke twelve sixteen to 21. Then he told them a parable. There was a rich man whose land produced a bountiful harvest. He asked himself, what shall I do? For I do not have space to store my harvest. And he said, this is what I shall do. I shall tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I shall store all my grain and other goods. And I shall say to myself, Now, as for you, you have so many good things stored up for many years. Rest, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your life will be demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, to whom will they belong? Thus will it be for the one who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich in what matters to God. What strikes me, I think, at first about this is how utterly normal the rich man seems. Yep. You could make his whole story into a 401k advertisement (laughs) if you left out the part that God is going to judge you harshly (laughs) for it. Like, this could just be a plan for a retirement account for fill-in-the-blanks. Right. Like, hey, you've worked a hard life. Eat, drink, be merry. I mean, you can almost visualize the nice shots of a a vacation on the Riviera or fill-in-the-blanks. But God condemns the man for it. And we are so entrenched, I think, in this culture, so entrenched in don't think about death, live this really materialistic capitalist life, that it doesn't even occur to us that he might have done something wrong. It just seems utterly bizarre for us uh, that God would do this. And we're a culture that in ways big and small, really we we push death to the peripheries. Things like nursing homes, Mm -hmm. things like assisted care, living in hospice and everything else, mean that most of us, get the privilege of avoiding ever having to face death, right? at least prior to the death of like a really intimate loved one, Mm -hmm. like a spouse or our own death. right? It's not a regular part of our day-to-day life in any discernible way. I mean, think about it. People are dying every day. When it comes to really hearing about death, for many of us, it's a really distant kind of abstract reality. Mm
1: -hmm. And that makes total sense too for like the world that we live in. Like we're told constantly that, what the rich man has is what we should strive for. We should strive for that big retirement and that healthy, like, comfortable life at the end because if we realize that that's something that's temporary and that our Hirsch does doesn't get a U-Haul when we leave, then everything that capitalism or our society teaches us about success really kind of falls apart.
0: Yeah, so there's a great uh, kind of thought experiment. If you were to to ask someone, uh, what are your goals? Maybe they say something like, get my kids through school. Mm -hmm. Well, and then what? I'll pay off the mortgage. And then what? I don't know. Get a million or two in the bank. I, you know, retire (laughs) really well. Okay, and then what? I don't know, like travel some? And then? And just keep pressing that question. Whether it's on them or even better, I think, on yourself. Exactly. Eventually, if you really follow that thought through, okay, you gather a bunch of stuff and then you die. Well, suddenly... All of that rat race seems like kind of a waste of time. Right. All of that accumulation of goods so that you can die and leave all of it behind and take none of it with you. I love the phrase you had, the, the hearse doesn't have a U-Haul. Mm-hmm. Well, suddenly that seems kind of insane. And so this is the first biggest reason uh, to remember death. Besides the fact that it tells us who we are, it also puts all of our actions... In the proper light. Is this something that makes sense given the fact that you're going to die? Uh, and all you do, remember the end of your life, and then you will never sin. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the scriptural way of saying YOLO. You only live once. <laughs> That's true. But it's funny. YOLO became a popular phrase some years ago. I'm showing myself to be terribly uncool, <laughs> continuing to use it now. But it was used by people, especially kids, to yep. justify doing stupid and reckless things. And what was so striking about it is that it should have been (laughs) the great check on those things. Like you're going to die and you really want your last action to have been to have had six two liter bottles of Mountain (sighs) Dew and thrown yourself off a building or whatever, you know, like, no, that's an insane way to, you know, like, these actions don't make sense for a creature who's going to die, face judgment in heaven or hell.
1: Right. It only makes sense when you think of death as the end because I, you know, you go the cultural understanding, like, because I'm just a body, like, of course drinking six, two liters of mountain, sure, why not? But then when you look at it as the goal of your life is not to die, the goal of your life is to become a saint, the goal of your life is to strive for heaven and beatific vision, that changes it. Then those six, two liters of mountain dew sound like an awful idea.
0: (laughs) For a lot of (laughs) reasons. But (laughs) but yeah, I mean, quite seriously. And I think as you get older these things start to make more sense almost intuitively because you start to see things like the long-term consequences of your past actions, which makes it easier to understand the long-term consequences of your current actions Exactly, and other things. I mean, you know, your prefrontal lobe, whatever the cortex, it gets more developed. So you're able to understand and deliberate a little better than when you're 18. But in a strange way, our culture acts like it still can't do that. Yep. It encourages this constant cycle. So before the episode, We were talking about this idea of what's called induced demand. It's very simple. We think, most of us, that supply and demand works this way. There's a demand for something, some good or service, and so then producers respond by creating supply for that demand. People are hungry, so farmers grow food. Simple enough. And for much of human history, that's more or less how it worked. Mm -hmm. But in modern times, we've gotten very good at what's called Induced demand. That means this. There isn't a demand for your product until you create it. So no one needed the iPhone X until the iPhone X came out. And it works by making you unhappy. This is the thing that's so pernicious and so horrific about so much of induced demand. Mm -hmm. It works by making you unsatisfied with what you have right now. Because if you're not unsatisfied, if you're content, if you're happy, you're not going to buy the next generation of smartphone. You're not going to buy the next generation of car. You're not going to buy this year's
1: fashion. Right. Yeah. Women's fashion is awful at this. Like, you don't know that you need the new style of boots, even though your old boots are totally fine and functional. No, they don't fit this year. And like, you want to, nope, you got to keep up with the demand.
0: It's actually, I think it's a great example because it's a really incredible uh, instance of you have perfectly usable clothing. Right.
1: Closets (laughs) full,
0: but it's it's frowned upon you're considered to be some sort of weirdo right if you don't basically throw all of that out and get new stuff every year and the new stuff uh, just speaking as a guy often (laughs) isn't actually better
1: or that much different i might be
0: treading in some dangerous waters here i maybe should just hold my tongue but i would just say maybe (laughs) We don't see such a clear marked improvement that would justify buying a whole new wardrobe every year. Mm
1: -hmm. And we see this too with like celebrities who do have funds where they can purchase new wardrobes. Go and check how like how much the outrage or outrage is when a celebrity wears the same dress to a different event. Which is logical because that dress is functional and is totally doing its purpose. But heck no, like she wore that last time. Why is she doing it again?
0: So it's embarrassing that I'm going to be the one to mention this of the two of us. (laughs) But Verily Magazine had an article comparing French to American women's fashion. And I just thought it was really interesting because I'd lived in Europe for three years. So I've seen some of these things kind of up close. One of the things they were talking about is that in France, if you have an outfit you like, you wear it a lot. Right. Now... I'll say that in the U.S. I do that still, but it's not really okay for a no. lot of women to do it because right. it's expected that you don't wear the same thing twice, which is utterly insane. Right. Yeah. It's the height of this kind of materialistic culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and it, But notice that this materialistic culture only works if you're perpetually unhappy.
1: Right. This isn't something that thrives on, like, being content or, like, in the case of an outfit. Like, I have something that I am confident in and I, I like how I look in this. It's then said, okay, throw it away. Like, go find another one.
0: Right. It's much more like the the cycle, psycho, psychologically, of what you'd have with, like, a drug addict. Yes. You're always chasing that next high. Right. And so that's the way the culture approaches material goods. So we're not saying that material goods are bad. Nope. Jesus isn't saying material goods are bad. Nope. But just like alcohol isn't bad in moderation, but a person who approaches it as an addict, or food isn't bad in moderation, but a person who approaches it as an addict, we have an addiction to material goods in the culture. And we approach approach it like an addict. And as a result, like an addict, we're not actually happy. The drunk isn't happy with his drunkenness. And we're not happy with this whole glut of stuff that we have. One of the great analogies I've heard the culture compared to is if you imagine a car driving towards a cliff and there are billboards on the side of the road you just focus obsessively on the billboard because you don't think there's any way to put the brakes on. That's how we are in both big ways and small. We distract ourselves to death. We constantly inundate ourselves with fleeting things that we know are fleeting. Things that don't really make us happy, even in the short term. You know, uh, we talk about, like, browsing on Facebook in some yeah. previous episodes. I've definitely been guilty of this. This is largely coming out of a place of self-critique, uh-huh. I think. But you can browse on Facebook. And at the end of it, literally not even know what you read. You don't feel content. You don't feel rested. You don't feel better about yourself. And yet, that's the cult. You just have distracted yourself for 30 minutes. I was talking to a woman yesterday who'd had her two grandchildren over and she'd planned a whole movie night for them. And the, they were, I believe, 12 and 15. The idea was they were going to have a no phone night. They were going to watch movies together. They were going to pig out on junk food. And, <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but it's a great, it's a great way yeah. of just kind of, she was going to bond with her granddaughters. And one of them said she had to go to the restroom. And the other one said, "Oh, she has an iPad in her bag." And they go in and they find her under the bed, looking at Snapchat because she had to keep all of the streaks alive. If you don't know what a streak is, congratulations.
1: That's okay. That's probably
0: better. (laughs) It it just means you've talked to or communicated. No, talk to is too strong. You've sent some stupid photo to another person every day for a certain number of days. Right. And so teenagers will have Snapchat streaks in the hundreds. Meaning that for the last, say, 400 days, they've sent some sort of photo to the other person. It's only encouraging hyperconsumption. Right. There's no reason why you need to be in daily contact with that many people when you have nothing to say and you go to school with most of them.
1: <laughs> no, but it takes, like, intentionality to not fall into that. Because Joseph and I have done hands-free Sundays and powered off our phones on the weekends. And we have to power them off because... Oh, you know, even, like, checking email or seeing if someone has texted you. Like, if you have gotten into this habit of having your phone in your dang back pocket, like, it's hard to reroute that.
0: Absolutely. So we went on uh, a little Steubenville youth retreat Mm -hmm. a few years ago. And the students who went on it weren't going to have their phones on from Thursday to Sunday. And it was legitimately extremely difficult for them. Honestly, I think we could do an entire episode... Just on the perils of smartphones and information age. There's a lot of really terrifying stuff coming out on this. But what I was struck by is they had gotten their friends back home to sign into their accounts just to keep the streaks alive. And this is addict behavior. This is junkies. Like, yep. And what it is, is this terminal addiction to distraction. Yep. Because you don't want to focus on the reality of imminent death. You know, it's like if, if the plane is going down... And to keep someone calm, you try to tell them a story. What are you doing? You're recognizing we can't escape death. Right. But rather than spiritually prepare ourselves for it, let's just distract ourselves so we don't panic. Mm -hmm. That's where we find ourselves culturally. That's a terrifying place to find ourselves culturally. Right.
1: We should be able to think about death and not be in a panic mode. Because death is inevitable. We can't escape it. And we do better for ourselves and our culture as a whole if we had more adult conversations about the subject.
0: Absolutely. So papal coronations in days of old were these elaborate affair. They were incredible. I mean, this was the most powerful person in the entire world. And there was no serious rival. And so there were these really beautiful, very ornate liturgies. But there was one uh, shoeless monk who would follow the papal procession, yelling out, Sic transit gloria mundi. And everyone would stop and listen to him yell this. And it means the glories of the world fade. In other words, this is beautiful, but you're going to die. So don't get lost in this. If this isn't preparing you for death, then it's it's not serving its purpose. In the 15th century, there were a couple of books that went by the name of Ars Moriandi, which means the art of dying. Mm. And these books were all about how to die well. And at the time, death was inescapable because the Black Plague and things had reminded people in an all too obvious way about the reality of death. And so I think one of the best spiritual fruits of that is that people started to take the question of death very seriously. And a lot of them already had. But you see during this period also what's called memento mori art. Uh, So I used to, I spent a month uh, living in Tallinn, Estonia. And there, uh, there's one of the world's largest memento mori paintings uh, called Dance Macabre, or like the Dance of Death. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to describe. It's a giant wall to wall painting of all these important people popes and cardinals, kings, ordinary people, men and women alike, people of all ages being led to the grave by dancing skeletons. <laughs> it's a pretty it's dark morbid. kind yeah. of, yeah, kind of morbid. Yeah. Uh, I mean, literally morbid in the sense of morbidity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a morbid painting. But the point was, we're all going to die. So don't ever get lost in the social trappings. Don't ever get lost in any of that. And I think that if you bear that in mind, you'll live better. So I was talking with a guy yesterday uh, about he, he was being offered a promotion at work. And he was talking about the, the need to resist falling into kind of that career risk. Yeah. Of remembering like, what is this all for? And because it's easy to approach... I call it video game living. Where you just focus on getting as many points as you can. Whether that's points of social approval. Or points of money. Or points of you name it. But at the end of the video game... It doesn't matter how many points Mario has. I mean, (laughs) that's not not a very recent video game. But (laughs) again, I'm terminally uncool. It doesn't matter. The points don't matter once the game is over. Right. And so death is a game over screen. Mm -hmm. So how have you actually prepared for hitting that game over screen? Or are you just trying to rack up as many points as you can while forgetting about the fact that it's going to come to an end one way or the other?
1: So we're talking about death during the first week of Advent. That seems like a weird time to talk about death. But speaking of talking about death at odd times, Joe, let's talk about your wedding and how Memento Mori played a role in that day.
0: So Memento Mori means remember your death. I mentioned it a second ago. And it was on the groom's cake at the wedding. There's a giant skull. Uh, my friend Kate Essenberg is an incredible cake artist. And so she made both the bride's cake, which is this beautiful. Oh, yeah, it, well, it really was. I mean, it had the sacred heart. It had the immaculate heart. It had John Paul II's crest. Mm-hmm. And the groom's cake, sitting next to it, <laughs> has a white chocolate skull on a dark chocolate cake with little tiny white chocolate skulls. Uh, encircling it with the words <laughs> memento mori and it it, it was cake. <laughs> it was a conversation starter as a cake. but if you listen to the liturgy for weddings, they focus on death a surprising amount yep. like the phrase till death do you part isn't in there on accident. We should marry, we should live, we should do everything we do in light of the fact that we're gonna die not in a depressing way right. But so there, I was saying in the in the toast at the wedding reception that there's this old Irish wedding proposal and this classic like kind of dark Irish humor that just says, "Will you be buried with my people?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's true. That's what happens.
0: Right. Like that. It's this notion of let's share life together and prepare one another for death. And so I think it's a much holier, healthier, and more realistic way to enter into marriage than the kind of fairy tale happily ever after because happily ever after has an end mm-hmm. in death and you either literally become happily ever after in heaven or you become terribly miserable in hell yeah. that's the happily ever after we need to be chasing not the happily ever after of kind of the fairy tale romance so a marriage i think and i think my wife would agree a marriage centered on Living to be a saint and helping the other person become a saint. Helping any children to become saints. Preparing one another for death, judgment, and heaven. I think that's just a better way to approach all of of real life. Mm
1: -hmm. So speaking of happily ever afters, let's talk about the Christian understanding of death and how that's just so radically, beautifully different. So the Catechism talks about death in paragraphs 1007 through 1009. And it says, death seems like the normal end of life. So we think that to be human means to die. That's just the reality that we're living in now. But that's not actually the original plan. Like God didn't put Adam and Eve in the garden to die. He put them in the garden to live in community with him for eternity. So in paragraph 1008 of the Catechism, it reads, Even though man's nature is mortal, God had destined him not to die. Death was therefore contrary to the plan of God the creator and entered the world as a consequence of sin. So now we live with this consequence of sin. Dang it, Adam and Eve, we face death on a regular basis. But it's not hopeless because as Catholics and as Christians, we believe that death is transformed by Christ. So Christ comes into the world through the incarnation. He takes on human nature and he dies for us, um, opening the gates of heaven. And Catechism paragraph 1009 says, the obedience of Jesus has transformed the curse of death into a blessing, which is just a completely radical um, different perspective on death and what we are offered by the culture
0: so yeah we talked so far a lot in this episode about how a lot of what the world thinks of as the important things in life turn out not to be so important in light of the fact that we're going to die so spending a lot of time and energy investing in those things ends up seeming kind of dumb mm-hmm. but and this is i guess a little bit of a foreshadowing of the next three weeks the christian message is that's not the end of the story that christ opens the gates of heaven And this turns death from a curse into a blessing. That now, like St. Paul, uh, we can look forward to death eagerly because to be absent from the body is to be present Mm -hmm. with the Lord. That we should be preparing for death in such a way that death is a a blessing when it comes. You know, if you think about it a little bit, uh, like pregnancy, there's a sense in which birth is an end. It's an end to pregnancy. But of course no one talks about birth as an ending we no. talk about it as a beginning because you have nine short months in this limited environment of the womb and then you have maybe 80 years a much longer period of time and a, a much bigger in a lot of ways more interesting kind of existence <laughs> sure well the same thing is true of death uh psalm 90 tells us that our, our years come to an end like a sigh it talks about how we live maybe 70 or 80 years Their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. So in comparison to eternity, this is a brief sigh of existence. But it's a sigh of existence in which we prepare for the rest of eternal life. So if we think about it that way, just like the time in the womb is to prepare you for your earthly life walking around, The time on earth is to prepare you for your heavenly life. And if you don't prepare well, it's not going to turn out well. That radically changes. It means that, you know, I think it'd be easy to take part of this podcast today and say, well, it sounds like everything (laughs) is pointless because we're all going to die. But no, like this is an incredible, privileged, unrepeatable time of preparation. And so again, I want to make the analogy to being in the womb. Like, if you have a birth defect or something, if something can go wrong there, and for the rest of your life, you just kind of can't undo it. Well, that's a horrible tragedy in nature when it happens. But in our lives, the same thing is true. We have this very short span of time mm-hmm. to get us ready for eternity. And the things we do now echo through eternity for positive or for negative. Yep. And so we should live accordingly, but always living kind of in light of the fact this is a very brief time before death and that's when in a lot of ways the really interesting stuff gets started
1: so we really encourage you this first week of advent to really memento mori to remember your death um, to remember that there is something after death this beautiful goal of a holy death in right relationship with god and i think that's especially an important message to remember in a christmas season that our culture kind of sees as a countdown to getting all the stuff you need together to celebrate Christmas, but instead to take this beautifully countercultural approach to Advent, um, and to really take it as a time of preparation for your heart with you uniting with God at the end.
0: Absolutely. Let's close in a prayer. Sounds good. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
1: As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In
0: the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit
1: the podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute to find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission check out www.schoolfaith